You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. iOS 11 Beta. One hopes that it doesn't crash. <laughs> uh, my wife, Ginger, sitting right back there in the polka dots on, a, on the back row. And we retired from the Diocese of Fort Worth roughly a year ago. I was the rector at St. Andrews, downtown Fort Worth, and we uh, decided it was time to retire. And we decided that uh, all clear-thinking people should retire to the Hill Country. Uh, <laughs> after all, uh, we both graduated from UT Austin. Our kids and grandkids are in the region. And it is, after all, the hill country. Uh, You'll remember from Joshua chapter 14 that Joshua and Caleb deliberately chose the hill country because it was inhabited by the the Anakim, the giants. And they wanted to move out there and track them down and destroy them and clear the land of Anakim. Well, our our hopes are less grandiose, but we're very happy to be in the hill country and very, very blessed to be uh, invited by Father Sean to uh, share this time with you in the pulpit. Uh, you, you can, if you've been any time around this church, you know that we have a very high elevated view of the Bible and reverence it as it truly is the inspired word of God. And that's, that's at the core of my being, the core of my conviction. So I feel very much at home here. I was surprised and delighted to learn that Father Sean had invited me to preach the final sermon of an ongoing series, a series based on the epistle to the Romans and entitled Christ in Us. It's been a great series, it's, and it, it comes to this consummate passage in Romans chapter 8. I cannot believe he would give it away. It's just such an astonishing, wonderful passage. But it's right for us to come to that passage where Paul sets forth with such profound clarity the place of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people generally and in the lives of God's people at prayer more particularly. For we must surely remember the words of Jesus in his upper room. You remember he's getting ready to go to the Father, and his disciples are all frantic about it. What do you mean you're going to leave us? And, and he, he says, no, it's to your advantage. It's to your advantage that I leave, because things are actually going to get better. The Spirit who has been with you will be in you. I'm going to send him from heaven, and uh, you're going to be benefited by this ascension. So Jesus, in that upper room discourse, lays out the fact that this is all for the good. You know, they're feeling like, this is not good. We're going to be left in the lurch. You're going to be remote from us. And how in the world are we going to get by without being in close proximity to the one that we've lived with for close to four years now? That's what they're thinking. That's what they ask. But his answer is, no, you're not at all going to be left in the lurch because I'm sending this remarkable gift from heaven upon you, which will change everything. And here's what he says. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you, but he will be in you. And the difference between with and in is staggering. And then regarding their anxiety about his departure and imagined absence, well, he says very plainly, he couldn't have said it more clearly than this, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. And then, lest there be any confusion that this does not merely pertain to the coming of the Son and of the Spirit, but also involves the Father, he says in what is some of the most intriguing language, I think, 
found on the lips of Jesus anywhere. He says this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we, that is I and the father, will come to him and make our home with him. So this, <clears throat> this idea, this notion of Jesus in us, which is frequently found in the writings, frequently find, found on the lips of Paul, it is by no means an idea of Paul's origination. The Lord himself taught these things and he taught them explicitly in the upper room discourse. But perhaps this truth had an unusually great pull or attraction upon Paul in his life because of those initial words spoken by the ascended Jesus to the unconverted Saul, the persecutor. You remember? On the road to Damascus, he hears the Lord say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, how odd, how strange those words must have seemed to him. He could... He was persecuting the followers of Jesus. He knew that. But why would or how could this voice claim that he was persecuting him? How indeed, unless this risen and ascended Jesus and his followers were so closely united that to persecute the followers was also to persecute the Lord himself. And so it was. And so it is. But again, how does this glorified ascended Jesus come to and into his people? Well, the answer is he does that through the person of the Holy Spirit. And Romans chapter 8 is, is Paul's magisterial setting forth exactly how the Lord does that. This is his grand exploration of that all-important transformative reality. Now, you will remember that Paul set forth what to him and really what to us, if we're experiencing life with any honesty, is the the great question, the great problem that we all experience in life in this broken world while we still wear this corrupted Adamic skin, by which I do not at all mean our material bodies, but rather our Adamic corrupted nature. He sets forth the question, he sets forth the problem in anguishing language this way. You remember it. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members... Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, if that is the problem, if that is the question, well, the answer is Romans chapter 8. And the theme which recurs throughout this entire glorious chapter is the theme of the Holy Spirit and his work in the heart's and in the lives of those who have been born into a new life in the Lord and are now learning to walk by the Spirit. So, in text prior to today's text, we have already heard, for example, from verse 2, that the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Or from verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or from verse 6, that whereas to set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Verse 11, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in us. Or in verses 15 through 17, that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, 
that we might also be glorified with him. And then last week, in that amazing passage that Father Sean unpacked for us about the, the cosmic character of the redemption. It's not some little privatized or individualized thing, but the whole creation is being redeemed by God. We heard this statement, which sets the stage for what we hear today. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who had the first fruits of the Spirit, once again, reference to the Spirit, the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So now this morning, looking at the final stretch of Romans 8, we come to Paul's final statement about the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people, and we hear something so unexpected We hear something so amazing that we wonder perhaps we've not heard it rightly. For remarkably, Paul says this, and listen to it carefully. It's staggering. Likewise, and that that first word uh, was, was left out somehow. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now that word, that all-important first word, likewise, clearly suggests a comparison. And the comparison is without any doubt found in the repetition of the word groaning. For this is the third reference to groaning in this immediate passage. So in verse 22 of the whole created order, he said... For we know that the whole creation has been groaning, groaning together in the pains of childbirth even until now. The next verse, verse 23, of the children of God presently live in our lives within this broken and chaotic and disordered creation. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who had the first fruits of the Spirit groan, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the likewise, the word likewise, which begins verse 26, is suggesting that just as the broken and disordered creation groans, just as the children of God longing for the redemption of our bodies groan, so likewise the Holy Spirit of God who is now within us, he joins us in that groaning. So the question of this day, I believe, is this. What exactly does it mean that the Holy Spirit of God um, helps us in our prayers in joining us, in joining the creation in our mutual chorus of groaning? And I believe this text, and we're just looking at the first two verses, I think this text is teaching us three great truths about the Holy Spirit's involvement in our lives generally and his involvement in our lives, particularly with respect to prayer. And this is unique to this passage. This teaching is not found elsewhere as far as I can tell. Three points. The first is this. The groaning of the Spirit reflects the divine participation in our frustration and our anguish in living in a world presently defaced and distorted by sin. Now, the first and the central meaning of this idea of groaning is that of painful frustration and even anguish in this shattered, in this broken world. The very first occurrence of the word groaning in the whole Bible, the very first time we see it, 
is in the Greek rendering of Genesis 3.16. And there we read, And to Eve God said, I will greatly increase your pains and your groaning. And that noun is precisely the same noun Paul's using in Romans 8. With pains you will bring forth children. So this groaning of the spirit is reflective of the misery of the curse which fell upon the creation as a result, of course, of the great transgression. God is not remote. God is not aloof or somehow unconcerned about this anguish which we experience. The groaning of the spirit reflects our sharing a common anguish. Now, we could be. Some are tempted to say that the Lord shares our anguish. And if we state that carefully, parse it very precisely, uh, that can be a true statement. But a truer statement, much truer to the mark, one closer to the heart of the reality is that we share in the Lord's suffering, which is a little bit different. The direction is different. Remember, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus said on the road to Damascus. Or from earlier in this chapter, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ If indeed we suffer with him, that's a present tense verb. If indeed we are suffering together with the Lord now that we might be glorified with him. Or perhaps the text that makes this idea clearest, Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is to say, the church, Colossians 1.24. I think this one commentator just nails it when he says, in a real way, it's not Christ who shares in the present sufferings of Christians. It is Christians who share in the present sufferings of Christ and so in their own flesh complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Then he cites Colossians 1.24. So we, as the body of Christ, and I think Paul means that much more literally than we ever imagined, we are participants in these ongoing sufferings of Christ. And his spirit, which now lives within us, it groans in anguish as those afflictions continue and in fact even intensify in this broken and disordered world. There could not be a greater closeness between Christ's sufferings and the sufferings of his people, of his body, the church. So the spirit's anguishing groans in association with our prayers speak to the absolute intimacy between Jesus and his followers, his experience and our experiences. He is in us, and we are in him, indeed his body, and the groans of the Spirit reflect that union. Then secondly, the groaning of the Spirit reflects the divine assurance within us that this anguish, well, it's, it's temporary, it's provisional, it's not final. It's constructive. It's not meaningless or ultimately destructive. And it is anticipatory of glories greater than we could ever begin to imagine. Now, as I already mentioned, the first occurrence of this word in the Bible is Genesis 3.16, where God speaks to Eve about her future suffering and groaning. But he's not talking to her about suffering and groaning generally. No, he's talking to her about the suffering and the groaning which will occur in the process of childbirth. So this groaning would be an integral part of that most amazing of all human experiences, that of bringing forth new life into the world. And the new life, which a future Eve would bring forth, looks to a day when the forces of evil will be entirely overthrown. As God told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, that's the idea of giving birth, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
the future product of the woman's groaning and laboring would one day be one who would entirely destroy the serpent and the serpent's brood. And only the the divine son, only the Lord could or would ever conquer the devil and his minions. But one day, Eve is promised that child would surely be born. So the groaning is both anguish over the cursed and broken state of the creation, but at the same time, almost paradoxically, it's also a joyous anticipation of the birth of one who would one day destroy the forces of evil and restore the creation to its paradisal conditions of the Garden of Eden. And that Paul has this dual aspect in mind is plainly suggested in his first use of the word in this passage in verse 22, where he stated, we need to remember this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. He puts those two terms right together so there's no doubt the way he's thinking of it. So the Holy Spirit of God both joins in with the chorus of anguish and frustration over the current sorry state of God's creation and the tragically impaired lives of his image bearers. And at the same time, he joins in our attitude of confident, hopeful expectation that a new reality is soon coming. A reality, a glorious kingdom which will entirely swallow up the current disorder, madness, and brokenness. And Jesus, from time to time, uses that same language of birth pangs in apocalyptic texts where he's talking about the coming, uh, the fullness of the kingdom. He talks about various hardships that will come upon God's people, but these are just the birth pangs and then the Lord comes. So it's anticipatory. It's both frustration and anguish and it's joyously anticipatory. And the Spirit himself is our foretaste or the first installment of the glorious inheritance of the people of God. So those future glorious realities, they're not entirely and utterly future, for we've had a taste of them already. Thus, Christian people can be described this way, as indeed they are in Hebrews 6, as those who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers which can be rendered the miracles of the age to come. So, a part of our groaning... And of the Spirit's groaning within us is that we are filled with an inconsolable longing, as Lewis liked to state, that those things which we have tasted come to full bloom in reality right now before us. But the birth pangs are a reminder that something awesome is just about ready to happen. Something awesome is in the process of happening, like a woman giving birth. And then thirdly and lastly, the groaning of the Spirit is the remedy to our not knowing how we should pray and thus praying ineffectually. For the Spirit, in these groanings, He intercedes on our behalf in perfect conformity with the will of the Father, and the Father hears and understands perfectly these groans of intercession. Now, in in Romans 8, He talks about many aspects of the brokenness of the creation, many aspects of the brokenness of our lives, but one of the frustrating weaknesses which afflicts us this side of glory is that we just don't know how to pray in so many instances. You know, I know I don't want my friend to die. I know I want my friend to be healed. But is that the will of the Lord? Or is God going to glorify himself and help my friend through his death by that illness? I don't know. So how do we pray? Now, prayer according to the will of God, of course, unleashes that divine power, which brings about the desired result. But prayer at odds with his perfect will, well, these prayers are still answered, but they're answered in the negative, which, by the way, of course, is to our advantage. But the third person of the Trinity lifts us beyond the impasse of the limitations of our knowledge of God's will by praying for us, always praying according to God's will, 
and thus unleashing the power of God in our lives with irresistible and indeed earth-shaking power. These groanings are either incomprehensible or inaudible, the, the Greek could mean either, or both to us. And for this reason, that perfect will of God will remain oftentimes a mystery to us, even though the Holy Spirit has aligned himself in our prayers with his groanings. But these groanings, which are always in, form, in conformity with God's will, are perfectly understood by the Father. And that's what Paul means in describing the Father as he who searches hearts and knows what is the mind of the Spirit. For the connection between the Spirit and the Father, well, it's so absolute as to make any disconnect or any confusion of understanding utterly impossible. Paul makes this point elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 2. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And just as the Spirit knows and comprehends to perfection the thoughts of the Father... So the Father hears and understands perfectly the meaning of the groans of intercession which the Spirit utters on our behalf. We might not get it. In fact, usually we don't. But the Father certainly always does. So the implications of having the Spirit interceding on our behalf to the Father and always perfectly according to the Father's will, well, aren't they staggering? For we know we know from 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. That's amazing. This then is the basis of what follows in this glorious chapter, chapter 8 of Romans. There is no power in heaven, there is no power on earth that could possibly separate us from the love of God. There is no event, there is no occurrence, there is no happenstance which coming into our lives can truly cause us any ultimate harm. God works it all to our good. Now that's not to say that everything that occurs is good. No, there is real and terrible evil in this world. But when evil comes our way, as it sometimes surely does, it will do us no ultimate and enduring harm. For the Spirit is always interceding on our behalf in perfect accordance with the will of the Father and the Father will turn all those events toward our ultimate benefit. Thus, all is well. Thus, all will forever be well. So, as we bring our series, Christ in Us, to a close, let us not doubt the astonishing reality that we are truly the very body of Christ. He is in us. We are in Him. And this union, it is actualized, it is sealed by the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. When God's people suffer, the Lord is intimately close to us in that suffering. Indeed, it is his suffering which we as his body are sharing. For the risen and the ascended Lord, well, he has sent his spirit, the Holy Spirit, to enter among and within God's people. He joins in our chorus of groaning. And that groaning reminds us of glorious realities which are yet future. A new world is in the process of being born. This is the groaning of birth pangs. And our prayer, so often distracted, so often misdirected, so often ineffectual, well, when left to our own devices, it's empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf in perfect conformity to the will of the Father. So what is true of our salvation is true of our lives of prayer. It's all of God's initiative. It's his doing. 
we are not left to our own meager devices. Rather, the Almighty One lives in the midst of us and within His people, and He prays on our behalf. So it is all good, for God has made every imaginable provision. Amen. I invite you to a couple of minutes of reflection. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.